Welcome to Arkansas. Here we will meet a man who annihilated his entire family. I'm your host, Paulette, and this is Crime Biscuit. Before I begin, a little heads up. This is a pretty heavy case. There is incest, which would also imply rape. There is child abuse, murder, and more murder. So fair warning. I did obtain the bulk of the information for this episode by reading the book Obeying Evil by Ryan Green. Ronald Gene Simmons was born on July 15, 1940 to Loretta and William Simmons. In January of 43, When Ronald was just three, his father suffered a massive and deadly stroke. Loretta, who had come through the Depression, knew what it felt like to go hungry, and in the 40s, it wasn't that easy for a single mother to support herself along with a small child. So she did the only thing she thought she could do, and that was to marry again by the end of the same year. The man she married was William Griffey, and he was in the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, which meant that the family moved a lot, and I do mean a lot. For 10 years, Ronald was shuffled from place to place, not making any lasting friendships, and always having to get used to new places, new schools, and new people. It didn't take too long for Ronald to become known as a bully and a troublemaker. He didn't do very well in school, and it didn't take much to set him off. By the time he was 16, which would have been 1956, the school system and his parents had had enough. He was expelled from school, and his parents sent him off to military school. Probably no one thought he would do well, knowing how easily he would lash out and figuring the discipline of the military schooling would likely tick him off. To everyone's surprise, Ronald did extremely well. The discipline lifestyle seemed to suit him. The order of it all probably would be the precise reason for it. And at age 17, he dropped out of high school and immediately joined the Navy. At the same time, he cut all ties with his family. The first place he was posted after joining the Navy was the Bremerton Naval Base in Washington. While there, he met Rebecca Ulibarri. Slowly, over a period of time, Ronald won Becky over, and they moved in together. It wasn't until this point in their relationship that Becky got a real good look at her man's darker side. When they'd met, Becky wore her dark hair in a fashionable way, she wore makeup, and she liked to wear nice clothes. After moving in with Ronald, She stopped wearing makeup, wore her hair basically pulled back, and wore simple clothes. She also could not go out without him, and he was very particular in how he wanted his house kept. Initially, it seems that she sort of appreciated the fact that he found her beautiful without her hair all done up and her makeup on. She also liked the fact that he wanted a neat and tidy house. He went so far as to show Rebecca, Becky, how to wash the dishes properly. As time wore on, though, she began to worry that she was a disappointment if he had to show her how to properly shine a pan or if he had to reprimand her for not having his ashtray clean and nice. He was paranoid that if she stayed beautiful, just like she was when he first met her, other men would want her and he was not going to lose her. So he dictated how her hair was to be worn, what clothes she could dress in, and this, as we all know, is a form of emotional control 
and I would say abuse. Eventually, Becky will have no self-confidence, and she relies on Ronald for everything. When Ronald gets sent to New Mexico, Becky follows, and Ronald makes sure all ties to her family are now cut. A few days before Ronald turned 20, the two got married. Once this happened, Becky wasn't allowed to get mail from her family because everything had to go through Ronald. He would, over the course of time, so verbally abuse her that she felt she was completely incompetent and could do nothing without Ronald. One year into the marriage, Becky gives birth to a son, Ronald Jr., who they called Jean. Two years after that, Sheila Marie is born, and she is her father's favorite child, and not in a good way as she gets older. Shortly before Sheila was born, his time with the Navy was up, and he got worse in the sense that he became more controlling. But according to the book, Obeying Evil, he went into the Air Force, and in the author's words, quote, his demands became less like those of a dictator and more like those of a pesky office manager. Four children would come along, William, Loretta, Eddie, Marianne, and Rebecca Lynn, who you will hear me refer to as Little Becky, and then there is the youngest of the children, which is Barbara. As soon as the children were able, each one was given chores to do, and they were not always suited to the age that they were at. Ronald was of the opinion that if the kids couldn't obey, then they didn't need to live in the home. Any goodness he might have had in him was reserved for his one daughter, Sheila. With the way he behaved towards his family, one might not expect him to be successful outside of the home, but he actually did very well in the military. He retired after 22 years as a master sergeant in 1979. He received numerous awards for his marksmanship, mostly involving a 22 caliber weapon. Important fact to save for later. Now, the last time that Ronald retired, that would have been from the Navy, life got worse for Becky, as I mentioned a minute ago. She pretty much was now expecting the same thing when he retired from the Air Force and was probably bracing herself for it. Generally, going to the store was about the only thing she was allowed to do on her own, but she also had to be careful to be back quickly in case Ronald needed her for something. On this day, right after retiring, Ronald says he will take Becky to the store. This is out of character, and to Becky, it is a pleasant surprise. If he goes along, she obviously will not have to worry about being gone too long. When she heads out to the car, she can hear music and sees Ronald smiling and nodding his head to the music. This makes Becky happy, and inwardly she's hoping maybe this retirement will be a good thing. Maybe after two decades with this controlling, mostly unpleasant man, things might improve in their marriage. Oh, well, when she gets to the car, she sees that her daughter Sheila is sitting in the front seat, grinning right along with her dad. She is all buckled in and ready to go. She's giggling and slapping her dad playfully on the shoulder. Becky pulls the car door open, and Ronald looks at her, the smile on his face immediately disappearing. He motions with his head to the back seat. Becky knows better than to argue, so she is forced to get into the back seat. When they get to the store, Sheila is chatting away with her dad when he parks, and they keep chatting. No one moves to get out. Ronald looks at Becky in the rearview mirror and says, Go on then, we'll be waiting for you. Becky looked back before going through the doors to the store and saw Sheila leaning over to kiss her father on the mouth. And it wasn't a brief kiss. This wasn't the first time either. When Sheila was 15, 
They'd gone to a rare get-together at Becky's family's. When there, while there, excuse me, Ronald was sitting in a chair with a sour look on his face, not speaking to anyone. Sheila, age 15 at the time, went and plopped herself onto her dad's lap. When this didn't get the sour look off of his face, she kissed him on the lips. Family was appalled, but to Becky and the other children, this was just the way it was between Ronald and his daughter, Sheila. It gets worse and much, much weirder. Ronald calls a family meeting and announces to Becky and all of their children that 17-year-old Sheila is pregnant with his child. He goes on to say that they are going to raise the baby right along with all of the other children. He plans to keep up his incestuous relationship with Sheila, and he expects the family to support the decision. Out that this is the breaking point, but not for Becky. By now, Becky has been so emotionally beaten down and dependent on Ronald that she just gives in to his demands. Someone else, though, isn't going to take it sitting down, and that would be their firstborn, Ronald Jr., the one they called Gene. He is done watching his mother be humiliated by his father. With the exception of Sheila, Gene and the other children have been crushed emotionally by Ronald. Gene is not going to deal with his dad directly. Let me back up, though, and say Sheila may not have been emotionally crushed by her father, but she was crushed in a much different way, groomed and raped and impregnated by her father. So back to Gene. He doesn't want to deal with his father directly, but he's not helpless. He doesn't go to the police, but he anonymously lets Sheila's school counselor know that Sheila is pregnant and that the father of the baby is her own father. The guidance counselor has multiple meetings with Sheila. Sheila will not admit right away who the father is, but she does say that, yes, she is pregnant. So in New Mexico, 17 is over the age of consent. But the counselor and the other school employees have never seen Sheila with a boyfriend at all during the time she was in high school. She's pregnant, and because of the anonymous tips in the backs of their minds, they are trying to get the truth out of her. It takes a month, but they finally get it. She admits that her father is the one who got her pregnant. Immediately, criminal charges were filed. Sheila, though, said she would not testify to the identity of the baby's father. In the book, it mentions she might have been afraid of being labeled a sexual deviant, even though she was the victim. The book also mentions the way her father was behaving towards her during the days that this was in court. He blamed her, saying she brought the family shame and she was ruining his happiness and that of the family. There is a letter from that time period and one of the phrases in it written to Sheila by Ronald is this, quote, you have destroyed me and you have destroyed my trust in you. I will see you in hell, end quote. It would seem, though it's not real clear, what all went on within the family during this time. The Simmons clan pretty much cut itself off from anyone and everyone in Cloudcroft. Sheila was probably somewhere else while this was happening because I wouldn't think they would let her be in that home while this whole thing is coming out in court. Her not being there would explain why there are letters from Ronald to Sheila. He clamped down on con his control of the family, at least those he could still exert it over. Jean, the oldest, the one that anonymously let the counselor know something was up, took this opportunity to make a run for it. 
During this time, Ronald is losing control of the usual strict routine and expectations that he had for the other children. And he pretty much was watching all of his plans and hard work at creating this little heaven, at least in his mind, fall apart. Even though Sheila was still refusing to testify to the charges of incest, it was still working its way through the New Mexico justice system. Ronald's response was he took his entire family and fled the state. Authorities found the rental home they'd been living in abandoned. A year passed and there was no sign of the Simmons, which included Sheila, who would have given birth by then. The investigation pretty much slowed down and then stopped altogether. The family was actually in Ward, Arkansas. They had very little contact with anyone, and whatever money Ronald earned was paid in cash. If they rented property, which no one knows if they did or not, it must have been paid for in cash, no paper trail. That, or as the book suggests, they just stayed without paying until they were probably about to get kicked out, and then they would up and vanish to some other property. This bouncing around is the same kind of unstable environment that sort of set the emotional tone and the need for control and order that had set Ronald on a path himself at a young age. Eventually, though, the family would end up at their final home. Mockingbird Hill was a fancy name for an abandoned lot about 15 miles outside of Dover, Arkansas. It had a long winding drive, dirt drive, through a heavily wooded area. There were a bunch of no trespassing signs along the way, Till you reach the living arrangements. Not a house, but two mobile homes that had been welded together into one structure. The children were put to work immediately on building a wall with blocks out of a rubble pile that Ronald had found. Even eight-year-old Becky, whose hands would bleed from carrying the heavy blocks, was forced to help build the wall. I should say walls. There was one tall one at the front of the property and then a smaller one at the back. On their first night at Mockingbird Hill, he made the older children dig a cesspit because there was no toilet in the house. So prior to escaping from New Mexico, Ronald had a military pension. But now that was no more since they are basically on the lam. Now he is going to have to work to earn some money. The town of Dover was very small and he didn't have a specific skill that would get him one of the few jobs in Dover. So he had to drive 30 miles to Russellville to find work. And the work he found was pretty low paying. Ronald, I'm guessing, finds this beneath him. And now he has to deal with other people, ones he has no control over like he does his family. He, of course, gets offended at everything. And in his overinflated mind and agitated temperament, everyone is out to get him. And there's that problem he has with wanting to control women. Despite all of this, he does have skills and he ends up with a job in a law firm as a clerk. His work is high quality, and his attention to detail is an asset. But he has no skill, zero, at handling the women at work. He sets his sight on Kathy Kendricks. She is not at all flattered by his attentions, and she reports his rude comments and the way he would flirt. I guess the way or ways in which he did it, Kathy found bordering on sexual assault. Ronald was immediately fired. The indignity of this would be rained down upon his family. There's no specific reports of physical abuse, but the emotional abuse and complete control he exercised over them would pretty much indicate that he likely physically harmed them as well. And of course, he molested and impregnated 
his own daughter. Becky made a couple of attempts to leave. First was a pretty weak one, and the book implies that she probably came back on her own, maybe because her children were stuck there with Ronald. A few weeks after being fired, Ronald got another job with an oil company. He didn't hold the position for long, though. He was always arguing with his employers, and at the first hint of untoward behavior directed at female employees, he was fired. It was probably after this second job loss that Becky tried to leave him again. Obviously, that didn't work out because she is still there. Despite the way that the children are worked like slaves at home, they all did very well in school, probably because Ronald demanded it. He didn't want any attention focused their way. The kids had friends, though I don't think anyone could come to their house. The older kids could go into the town at night and hang with other teenagers. After losing the job at the oil company, it took a bit for Ronald to find another job. Eventually, he did find one, and it was as a clerk at the Woodline Motor Freight Company. It seems Ronald had learned his lesson about letting his dark attitude towards women show at this new job. That attitude was one that stemmed from him viewing women as possessions and not people. None of the women at Woodline would ever come forward and complain about his behavior towards them. He did have a problem with his supervisor, who was a woman. Her name was Joyce Butts. Ronald didn't want a woman as a supervisor, and the two argued a lot. Ronald would go over her head when they disagreed about something. And Joyce didn't have much patience for this, and then she got wind that Ronald had resumed his infatuation with Kathy Kendricks. Remember, it's a pretty small town, and even though Kathy didn't work at Woodline, Joyce knew her. Ronald was showing up at Kathy's house with flowers and writing her little notes. Kathy was 30 years younger than him and in no way interested nor encouraging. Joyce would constantly tell Ronald to leave Kathy alone. And it's no surprise that he gets fired again. To Ronald, at least in his twisted mind, he lost the job because basically women were conspiring to hurt him. His next job was at a convenience store, the Sinclair Mini Mart, which is owned by the same guy that owned the oil company. So one day when he comes home, there is a strange car in his driveway. Ronald's hair is up. He does not like people invading his space. Turns out the car belongs to a boy named Dennis. He is there to basically ask permission to marry Sheila. You can imagine what must be going through Ronald's twisted head. He believes that Sheila belongs to him. And here is this Dennis McNulty saying that he wants to marry Sheila. Dennis tells Ronald he loves her and that he will be happy to raise little Sylvia as his own daughter. Well, Ronald is having none of that. He says he is not letting Sheila and Sylvia go anywhere. Turns out, Sheila and Sylvia are already gone. Ronald is bearing down on Dennis, but the young man is not going to back down. Before Ronald reaches him, Dennis tells him that he knows all about who Sylvia's father really is. This stops Ronald. Dennis gets up and tells Ronald that if he tries to come near Sheila or Sylvia again or lays a finger on them, he will kill Ronald. Dennis pretty much gives Becky a polite nod and leaves. Instead of the fury the family expects, Ronald goes quiet. For several days, he goes to work, then comes home, 
grabs some beers, and goes to sit in a dark bedroom by himself. This withdrawal by him gives the kids their first real glimpse of a normal life. Becky is seeing some light at the end of the tunnel as well. She finally has worked up the nerve to leave him. Jean, shortly after leaving home, had set up a secret post office box for his mom so that she could have mail without Ronald intercepting it. She and her son have talked extensively about how afraid she is of Ronald, but also how much she wants to start a new life. Becky tells Jean that her other attempts to leave failed because they were spur of the moment. Now she's trying to plan it out and do it right. A few weeks after Sheila left, Ronald up and quits his job. He didn't leave in a fit of rage like he did his other jobs. He just kind of seemed like he'd given up. He pretty much stayed home and drank until the money was about gone. When Becky approached him about Christmas, he gave her the money, what little they had, and didn't argue about it. Becky called her older children, wanting to get them all together for Christmas one last time. She was even able to talk Sheila into coming along with her husband, Dennis. Ronald is busy drinking in the dark. He has his own holiday plans. Now, let me clarify here that some time has elapsed since Sheila left. It's years. Now we get to the wee hours of the morning on December 22nd. Ronald gets up, feeds the chickens, lets the dog out of its doghouse to run around a bit before he puts him back. Then he heads to town. He goes to Walmart and buys a 22 pistol and a box of ammo. He goes back home, running over the plan in his mind to make sure he has the timeline as perfect as he can get it. He parks the car off to the side to allow room for cars when the traitorous family shows up. Ronald takes the gun and a crowbar and walks towards the house. The kids would be at school by now. That is good, all according to plan. Becky is at the kitchen table. He can see her there. He goes into the house. Someone is there that he doesn't expect. His oldest child, 29-year-old Jean, is backing out of a bedroom where Ronald's three-year-old daughter, Barbara, is napping. Jean turns, surprised to see his father. He gets the word dad out before Ronald attacks him with the crowbar. He hits Gene repeatedly about the head, shattering his nose. Ronald hits him until he is on the ground. Becky hears the noises and comes from the kitchen to see what is happening. Ronald turns the crowbar on her. He hits her across the shoulders to send her to the ground, and then he bludgeons her. At some point, he turns the crowbar over and uses the teeth of it on her, removing chunks of her flesh. Then he puts a bullet into the back of her head just to be sure she's dead. He then walks over to Jean's body and shoots him between the eyes. Little Barbara has been startled awake by the gunshots and is now crying. Ronald goes, has a beer and a cigarette, and then he goes into Barbara's room and bends down to give her a hug. Except after his arms are around her, he reaches up, puts his hands around her throat, and strangles her to death. He then drags Jean and Becky's bodies outside and pushes back the tarp and cinder block from the cesspit. He tosses their bodies in and then throws the crowbar in there as well. He goes back inside and gets a black trash bag and puts little Barbara's body in it. And then he lowers the girl's body into the pit beside her mother. He goes out and he pours some kerosene on the bodies in the pit. He then goes back into the house 
makes a mild attempt to clean up the blood, and leaves the doors open to air the house out. He takes the last beer from the fridge and sits in front of the television with the gun by his hand and waits. When the bus comes, he tucks the gun into his pants and covers it with his jacket and goes down to meet the children. The four Simmons children do not know what to make of their father coming down to the end of the driveway. He calms their suspicions by implying that it's all about a surprise for them arranged by their mother. The four kids walk right past the makeshift grave of their sister, brother, and mother and have no idea. He takes the kids inside the house and to their rooms. He then says their mom wants to give them each their surprise individually so she can enjoy their reactions. He will come get them one at a time. The first one he takes is 17-year-old Loretta. He takes her through the sliding doors and around to the water barrel at the back of the building. Ronald grabs a handful of her hair and pushes her face through the layer of ice on top and into the rain barrel. She fights him, trying to pull herself out, but the icy water has shocked her. She can't push her face back out, so she tries to claw him with her fingernails. She does rake his face, but his skin is dry and leathery, and it doesn't leave a mark. He responds to her, her attempts to fight him by pushing her neck onto the edge of the barrel and then putting his full weight down on top of her. That does the trick, and she goes limp. He drags her body to the pit and dumps her in. He goes to the house and gets 14-year-old Eddie. He plunges Eddie's face into the rain barrel as well, but Eddie doesn't fight like Loretta had. It is almost as if he's accepted what is happening to him. 11-year-old Marianne is next. She jabs her elbow into Ronald's face when the water hits her, but she is no match for him. Finally, he goes in for eight-year-old little Becky. She isn't tall enough to reach the top of the rain barrel, so instead, he leads her to the edge of the cesspit that is now full of corpses. He puts his hands around her neck and strangles her to death. He then puts her with the rest of his family. He pours more kerosene over the bodies to control the smell and hopefully deter animals from showing up. He then gets some spare barbed wire, crisscrosses it over the bodies before he puts the tarp and the cinder block back in place. Ronald will now wait four days for the rest of his traitorous family to arrive. Because he's given Becky money for a tree and for her little Christmas get together, he's been able to figure out a rough timeline of who will arrive first. On December 26, 1987, William, known as Billy, and his wife and son arrive around midday, just as Ronald expects. Ronald waits at the front door for them to approach the house. 23-year-old Billy is in front of his wife, 21-year-old Renata, and 20-month-old son Trey is behind her. Billy sees the gun, but only has time to gasp before his father shoots him in the chest. Renata runs forward to help her husband, and as she does, Ronald shoots her in the head, shattering her skull. Ronald goes, picks up Trey, and takes him out back to the rain barrel, where he holds the baby by the ankles under the water and drowns him. He then lets go and leaves the child in the barrel for the time being. With what he guessed was about an hour before Sheila and her husband and kids would arrive, he goes out and brings Billy and Renata's bodies into the house. 
He lines them up neatly in the middle of the room and he covers their faces with their own coats. He reloads the gun and waits, drinking a beer. Finally, he hears a car in the drive. He can hear them, Sylvia laughing as she and her parents walk up to the house. Dennis knocks and Ronald calls out for him to come in. They're all waiting. Dennis comes in first, holding seven-year-old Sylvia's hand, the little girl that is both Ronald's daughter and his granddaughter. He hasn't seen her in years. Behind Dennis and, and Sylvia is Sheila. She is now 24 years old, and behind her is her and Dennis's 21-month-old son, Michael. Ronald tries to give Dennis a smile and suggest they come in so that they can talk. Once inside, they see the bodies. Ronald shoots 23-year-old Dennis McNulty in the chest. Sheila, who knows her father very well, doesn't try to run. He levels the gun at her and basically tells her that all of this is her fault. She's betrayed him and it is her fault. Then he shoots her, killing her with one bullet. Isn't good enough for him. He unloads the gun into her, splattering the walls, the Christmas tree, and her two children with her blood. He snatches up baby Michael and strangles him, shaking him, and doing it so forcefully, he crushes the child's throat. He goes to the door and tosses the little boy's body out into the mud. Then he goes back to take care of the final family member. Sylvia is knelt down beside Dennis and is shaking him, trying to wake him up. This makes Ronald very angry. Dennis has not only stole Sheila, he stole Sylvia as well. He picks up Sylvia and strangles her to death. He lays Sylvia's body next to the others, putting Dennis beside Sylvia. He was going to put Sheila there too, but he can't do it. He takes her to the dining room table and lays her out, putting Becky's best tablecloth over her. He goes out and gets Michael's body out of the mud and puts him in a plastic wrap and then puts him in the trunk of Dennis's car. He drives the car around to where he has other junk cars sitting and he parks it there. He then goes out to the water barrel and retrieves Trey's body and puts him in the trunk of Billy's car and puts it with the junk cars as well. Ronald goes back into the house and sprinkles kerosene over the bodies in there to keep the smells down. He observes his handiwork and then goes out to a bar to have a few drinks. There he did some thinking. He knows he will not get away with what he's done, but decides he has a little more to do before it's over. On the 28th, he goes to Walmart, gets some more ammo, maybe a second gun, and heads to the law firm of Peel, Eddie, and Gibbons, where he'd been fired years ago. Wearing a cowboy hat, he goes in and shoots Kathy Kendrick. The lawyers and other secretaries can hear her yelling, and then they hear gunfire. For some reason, they think it's kids playing. By the time they finally go to see what has happened, it is too late for Kathy. One of the firm's clients was in the front room and had seen it happen, but she didn't know who the man was. Kathy is alive when they first get to her, but she dies before the ambulance arrives. She'd been shot in the back of the head. Ronald switches out his cowboy hat for a baseball cap and heads to Taylor Oil. Ronald walks in firing, fatally shooting J.D. Chafin just because he happened to be there. Then Ronald goes after his actual target, 
which is Russell Rusty Taylor. Rusty is the one who owned both Taylor Oil and the Sinclair Mini Mart. He shoots Rusty twice, severely wounding him. Julie Money, who has just began working for them as a bookkeeper, walks in from the bathroom. Ronald puts the gun to her head, but she screams no at him and dodges. The bullet goes through her hair, but she plays dead behind some crates. And Ronald leaves, laying down fire as he flees. Even though people saw him, no one had really put it together. If they had, they would have known the next stop he's going to make. He goes to the mini mart and switches hats one more time. He walks in and right up to the counter where he shoots his former co-worker, Rebecca Woolery, in the chest. She will survive the gunshot. The manager, David Saylor, hears the shot and comes out. Ronald turns the gun on him, but David has an instant to pick up a chair and throw it, which is enough of a distraction that Ronald, who had previously won marksmanship awards in the military, doesn't fatally wound David. Now, he might have walked up to both of them and shot them fatally, made sure the job was done, but Bill Mason is there out of sight stocking shelves when this all takes place. Bill is also a veteran. He starts throwing full cans of pop at Ronald and eventually Simmons will have to flee. But he isn't finished just yet. Ronald heads to Woodline Motor Freight. He wants to find Joyce Butts, the woman who had dared to stand up to him. He walks past other people that work there and finds his prize in a back office. He fires two shots at Joyce. One hits her in the chest and one in the head. He then leaves the room, thinking Joyce is dead. She survives, just so you know. He locks himself into an office and finds a former co-worker by the name of Vicki Jackson there hiding. He drags her out of her hiding place, but he doesn't shoot her. Instead, he calmly tells her to call police as he sets the gun down. He even offers to give her his backup pistol if she wants it. He says to her, Quote, I've done what I wanted to do, and now it's all over. I've gotten everybody who hurt me. End quote. Vicky makes the call to police and then has to sit there and make small talk with Ronald. He asks her why she's never come to see him at the mini mart. She says she just never happened to be there while he was working. He offers her a smoke, and the two sit there smoking and waiting. He then decides to make arrangements to turn himself in, but does it while using Vicky as a hostage. Ronald isn't afraid to die. He pretty much knows that is the fate awaiting him down the road. After all the killing, he's done. But he is afraid of a shootout that might end up with him paralyzed, but still alive. So Ronald was taken without incidents into custody and without speaking. He was booked into the Polk County Police Department. The initial charge was the attempted murder of Joyce Butts. As he's waiting there, the other spree shootings start to become known. He still doesn't speak, but when police ask him if he was the shooter at these other locations, he nods in the affirmative. While they are busy trying to book him, the small town is now becoming aware of the shootings. Death threats are starting to come into the station, and police realize it's a bad idea to keep him in Russellville. They decide to send him to a mental hospital for the reason of evaluation, but also to remove him from the jail and potential lynch mobs. Now keep in mind... No one knows about the family and all the dead adults and children at Mockingbird Hill. As they are heading to the Arkansas State Hospital in Little Rock, 
Deputy James Bolin recognized Ronald. It seemed because he was so reclusive, no one really knew who he was except the people who had worked with him in the past. Bolin, who would eventually become sheriff of the county, asked Ronald, how is the family up on Mockingbird Hill? Bolin said, are they doing all right? Ronald remained silent, but Bolin thought he saw a tear in the man's eye. This spurred him to make an immediate demand that they should go check on the family right away. The police had there, and while they have it in their heads, they might find bodies. They are not in any way prepared for what they find. Deputy Bolin walks up to the house and looks in through a window. He sees what you can imagine, and they immediately call for state police assistance. They do not have the training to handle something this large. It takes the combined efforts of local and state police days of searching before they find all of the bodies. The fact that some were out in the open and many were doused in kerosene, which I assume would confuse any cadaver dogs, made it a slower task than it might otherwise have been. The children wrapped in plastic and stowed in the two car trunks were the last to be found. And this was several days after the rest had been located and sent to the coroner's office. Deputy Bolin was able to come up with a timeline of events and identified three clusters of killings. At the hospital, over the course of three days, he is examined, Ronald is examined by Dr. Irving Kuo. Throughout these three days, he is getting updates as bodies are discovered. This carefully executed plan made it pretty obvious that Ronald was very calculating, but he still couldn't understand why any of it had happened. Even though Ronald refused to cooperate with Dr. Kuo, he was found competent to stand trial. In prison, though, they tried to keep the details of the murders from the general population, so they had to keep Ronald in isolation. Could go into details about the trials and the fear that they couldn't get an unprejudiced jury, so on and so forth, but I'm not going to. I will hit the high points, though. Ronald had no desire to do anything but plead guilty, and he wanted the death penalty. In a safety deposit box at a bank in Russellville, there were letters between Ronald and Sheila. In these letters, it became very clear that Ronald considered his incestuous relationship with his daughter to be his right, and his rage stemmed from being denied that. This letter was one of the letters was going to be presented into evidence. His lawyers tried to block it, but failed. District Attorney John Bynum for the prosecution read the letter word for word. It became clear that Ronald believed Sheila had ruined his life and he blamed her for everything. Ronald had to sit there in the courtroom and listen to his own clumsy words and confessions of love. Ronald jumped out of his seat and punched Bynum in the jaw and sent him to the ground climbed on him in what we can assume was the intent to beat him to death if he could. A court officer ran over to stop Ronald. Ronald grabbed at the deputy's gun. If not for the fact that it got caught on the holster, Ronald would have gotten the gun. Other officers jumped on top of Ronald, and while he screamed and fought them, they got him back into chains and took him from the courtroom. He was screaming threats of murder at Bynum as they were dragging him out. He did all of this in full view of the jury. And this is not the first trial for which he already received life sentences and a death sentence. This trial would end in a second death sentence. The last time Ronald appeared in court, 
he thanked the judge for the death sentence and said it was the only suitable outcome. I will say that Ronald's lawyer tried to appeal even though Ronald didn't want to. Arkansas's death penalty was under debate even though it had been reinstated. Other prisoners on death row were furious with Ronald. They thought that because he wasn't appealing or fighting his sentence, it might have an effect on their appeals. Ronald waited to be executed, but the first execution date came and went as the courts did their thing. After he'd eaten his last meal and was waiting patiently for them to come get him and take him to be executed, that is when they came in to explain to him it wasn't going to happen that day. Ronald, of course, didn't take it very well. On May 31st, 1990, Bill Clinton, then governor of Arkansas, signed Ronald Gene Simmons' death warrant, and it was scheduled for June 25th. This was the fastest execution from conviction to enforcement in U.S. history since the reinstitution of the death penalty in 1976. Ronald refused visitors, including his lawyers and anyone from the clergy. When he was led into the room where the lethal injection would be performed, he said, quote, justice delayed, finally be done, end quote. 17 minutes later, Ronald was declared dead. The state held onto his body for a specified period of time in case a family member came forward to claim the body. But Ronald had killed them all, and there was no one left to take him. He was buried in a pauper's grave in Star City, Arkansas. That will wrap up this episode. Hang tight for the final crumb. If you'd like even more detail on Ronald Gene Simmons and his crazy thoughts and mindset, check out the book Obeying Evil by Ryan Green. It's quite interesting. In the meantime, you can follow me on Instagram or Facebook at Crime Biscuit or send me an email at acrimebiscuit at gmail.com. Here's your final crumb. Ronald Gene Simmons proves two things. You don't have to be legally insane to do insane things. But you do have to be a monster. Thanks for joining me. See you next time.